0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Plenty of tenants are evicted in America, but surprisingly little is known about what causes or follows evictions. We examine the work of a pioneering sociologist who's been studying the factors that go in to being kicked out. And when you think of Leonardo da Vinci, you probably don't think of wine, but he certainly did. And thanks to a years-long effort, experts have ensured that Leonardo's vines and his vineyard are now getting their own renaissance. First up, though. Yesterday, after four years of investigation, deliberations and hearings, Israel's attorney general indicted Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for fraud, breach of trust and bribery. The attorney general, Avichai Mendelblitz, said he brought charges with a heavy heart.
1: A day in which the attorney general decides to serve an indictment against a seated prime minister for serious crimes of corrupt governance is a heavy and sad day. For the Israeli public and for me personally.
0: Mr. Netanyahu gave a defiant press conference.
3: I won't let the lie win. I will continue to lead the country according to the
0: law, exactly as written. I will continue to lead the country with responsibility, with dedication, and with care for the security and the future of all of us. Mr. Netanyahu is a master politician, but even he is weakened by these charges, which come as he's failed to form a government after two rounds of elections.
3: Netanyahu is the first sitting prime minister to face a bribery charge. Roger McShane
0: is our Middle East editor.
3: And it's really an amazing comeuppance for the man who became Israel's longest-serving leader earlier this year. And it, it throws his political future into doubt.
0: So let, let's walk through what the, the charges are here.
3: Yeah, he's been charged in three cases, known as Case 1000, Case 2000, and Case 4000. Uh, in in the first case, Case 1000, he's charged with fraud and breach of trust for allegedly receiving gifts from businessmen in return for various political favors. Uh, that's really the least serious case. The charges are the same in the second case, Case 2000, where he's accused of trying to strike a deal with an Israeli newspaper publisher in return for legislation that would have hurt one of the paper's competitors. that The deal never came off, but Netanyahu was charged anyway. The last case, Case 4000, is really the most serious. And in that one, he's accused of intervening in media regulation to benefit a big telecoms company, um, in return for favorable coverage on the company's popular news website. Uh, on, on top of fraud and breach of trust, he's been charged with bribery in that case. Of course, Netanyahu denies these charges and, and he blames a left-wing conspiracy for, for being behind the investigations.
0: But they are very serious charges. I mean, what, what's, what's he up against if, if, if found guilty?
3: Yeah, I mean, he could face up to 10 years in prison if convicted of bribery and three years for fraud and breach of trust. Now, it's really tough to say how it will all turn out, but I, I think you can consider a few things. First, the Attorney General who was a former advisor to Netanyahu, he, he knows how serious it is to bring charges against a sitting prime minister. And he wouldn't have done it unless he was very confident, not only that the charges were justified, but that he could win the cases. Second, as I said before, these investigations have been in the works for years. Other top advisors to Netanyahu have turned state's witness. There are tapes of conversations between the prime minister and some of the people he's alleged to have colluded with. The prosecution appears to have a lot of evidence to work with. Now, some of that evidence is circumstantial and inconclusive, and much of it the public hasn't seen. So we can't really say for sure how strong the case is. But the last thing I'd look at is Netanyahu's reaction to all this. Every step of the way, he has lashed out at investigators, prosecutors, the police, the media. He claims to be the victim of a vast left-wing conspiracy, a quote-unquote witch hunt, an attempted coup. So he certainly seems nervous
0: about what is coming his way. I mean, claims of a coup and lashing out at the, at the media and his opponents, this all sounds very similar to what we're seeing coming out of Washington.
3: Look, they're, they're very similar types of politicians. You know, they're, they're populists, nationalists, both harbor a deep resentment of elites. In, in many ways, Netanyahu was Trump before Trump. And, and both have painted the investigations into their actions as politically motivated. It's not just a language that is the same. Netanyahu and his allies, like the Republicans in America, are largely ignoring the actions at the heart of the charges while criticizing the process that led to the indictments and really impugning the witnesses and prosecutors involved in the case. So last night, for example, in response to the charges, Netanyahu called for an investigation into the
0: investigators, even though he himself appointed
3: many of those investigators.
0: So how do these charges play into the sort of existing political mess with the inability to to, to form a government?
3: Well, the the legal and political processes are, are very much intertwined. If you go back to the end of last year, as it became pretty clear that these charges were coming, in December, Netanyahu called for an early election in the hope of both delaying the indictments and winning a strong mandate to take them on. But the election, which took place in April, produced an inconclusive result. So there was another vote in, in September. And the allegations really have defined both election campaigns. The prime minister tried to portray himself as a victim, as a way to rally his conservative base. Neither side has come out of the you know, either election with enough seats to form a government. So what we've seen for the past two months are these painstaking negotiations between the parties, over the formation of a government, uh, and perhaps even uh, the formation of a unity government. And, And they've gotten nowhere largely because of these charges. These charges have hung over those talks. I mean, Gantz and his colleagues don't want to serve in a government led by a prime minister under criminal
0: indictment. And so you think there's no chance that Mr. Netanyahu would just step down?
3: There's no legal requirement for him to resign as prime minister. And he himself has said he's not going to step down. But a lot of Israelis question his ability to run the government while also mounting a defense against the charges. And others say there's an obvious conflict of interest that comes with the prime minister's power over the justice ministry and the police. So the decision to remain in office will almost certainly be challenged in the courts. But I think a more pressing concern for Netanyahu is the challenge he might face from within his own party. Some of his backbenchers have been talking about rebellion and then last night, Gideon Saar, who's a pretty big figure in Likud, Netanyahu's party, called for a primary contest over the party's leadership. And, you know, and this is important for legal reasons as well. For months, Netanyahu has been pushing his allies in the Knesset to grant him immunity from prosecution. And if he leads them to another election victory, uh, they, may, they may actually do so. Barring that, you know, as I said, there's no law that explicitly says an indicted prime minister must step down. But there is a law that says a member of the Knesset must resign immediately. So if Netanyahu's no longer the prime
0: minister, then he's got to go. So with all that in mind, and and after all of this plays out, uh, what what do you think will be the case in, say, a year's time, that, that Mr. Netanyahu is still prime minister or in court defending himself in jail?
3: I mean, the legal process, including appeals could take years. So Netanyahu's immediate future will be decided by politicians and voters. It's really interesting to see Likud members begin to stick their heads above the parapet to take on Netanyahu. I mean, we hadn't seen that before. As popular as the prime minister is, I think Israeli voters may be getting fed up with all the drama surrounding him. But you know, having said all that, this is a man who has defied expectations so many times before. So even despite the fact that he hasn't been able to form a government and that he's now facing these very serious corruption charges, you you really can never count him out.
0: Roger, thank you very much for your
3: time. My pleasure.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
0: There's little more difficult or disruptive than suddenly becoming homeless, especially for a child.
4: Next thing you know, my father came in. We just stopped packing up boxes. He went up to the Safeway and got boxes. I'm, I'm thinking like... We're moving, and I didn't technically say moving. We're just going to be with Grandma for a while.
0: Candace Lewis is a hairstylist who lives in Washington, D.C. When she was in elementary school, her family had a dispute with their landlord and were abruptly evicted.
4: I went through a huge, like, Sadness because I was a kid, but just trying to be strong, you know, as a child and that see, let my mom see that I was disappointed or, you know, like scared or anything like that because, you know, uh, you try to hide some things.
0: Trying to help the family, Ms. Lewis studied hard. She got good grades and then a job in a salon. But when she was just 29, her husband died. With her household income cut in half, she narrowly avoided being evicted again. In her mostly black, working-class neighborhoods, her story isn't unusual.
4: That was a, a normal for uh, our neighborhood. You always see people being evicted. It was like an everyday thing, to the point that you'll see people sitting on their couch outside. be like, hey, yeah, I just got my stuff put out. Oh, okay, girl, see you. You know, it was just a normal, everyday situation. And a lot of times, the only option was to shelter or stay with a family member. And the shelter, honestly, wasn't becoming... It was becoming like the new boarding house, which is strange to say.
0: Ms. Lewis says the problem has become worse as affordable housing has become more scarce.
4: Rent has got so high that the even working, striving, you know, hard person is finding it very difficult to meet. And, you know, um, and I have clients who work on Capitol Hill, And the first thing they tell me every time is like, I can't hardly pay this rent. The rent is too high. And they have really good jobs.
0: Although evictions are widespread in America, statistics were, until recently, hard to come by. But sociologist Matt Desmond was sure that evictions had increased and set out on what would become a groundbreaking study. His book, Evicted, was published two years ago.
5: What I've done to study eviction is I moved into a trailer park in Milwaukee and I lived there for several months. And then I rented a rooming house in the inner city and lived there for about 10 months.
0: Professor Desmond explained to the MacArthur Foundation, which gave him a big grant, that he also trolled through hundreds of thousands of eviction records and millions of 911 calls to formulate a new picture of poverty and housing in America.
5: When I started this project, I thought job loss would be a big cause of eviction. And it is but eviction is also a big cause of job loss it's a consuming stressful event that it can really compromise people's work performance and it often kind of leads them um, uh, to be fired and then there's the effect that eviction has on someone's spirit in one study we found that mothers who were evicted had higher rates of depression two years removed from the event
0: professor desmond's book unusually for a sociology text was widely read, it won prizes, and had a direct effect on policy. In New York City, for example,
6: they have now instituted a right to counsel for tenants in eviction proceedings, which is rolling out at the moment. Idris Kalun is our U.S. policy correspondent. And they've also strengthened something called their Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which will provide temporary financial payments to families that are on the edge of eviction. And even though housing in New York continues to climb in cost, the number of evictions that have been recorded have declined substantially. There were 30,000 in 2013 and there are 20,000 now. There is also another change beyond just legal counsel and and assistance that I think the book has engendered. And you could call it um, more dignified evictions. Cities like Washington, D.C., for example, will now require publication of the date of eviction well in advance. They won't do it during the rain. They won't do it when it's cold. There are just little changes like that that I think the book has also created in addition to these bigger policy
0: changes. But you say it's it sparked further study beyond just the policy changes. I mean, what kinds of questions are are being tackled now?
6: So the questions that social scientists are trying to address now are precisely what eviction does. There's an appetite in the social sciences for causal evidence of all of these different things, of moving to a good neighborhood, of losing your home. What what exactly changes about a person's life outcomes and their life trajectory before and after an eviction? And what did they find? So the recent economic studies on eviction have thrown up a counterintuitive finding and that is that if you compare people who go to eviction court, and you compare those who were evicted and those who weren't, and you look at their financial trajectories over time, you see that both of them, both groups of people do pretty poorly. And this suggests that perhaps the effect of eviction itself is not very large, but that the kinds of people who are likely to get evicted are doing poorly and have been doing poorly for a while. This suggests that perhaps the way that we should think about eviction is is more as a culmination of a spell of poverty as opposed to a, a trigger into
0: poverty itself. But that's not to say that eviction doesn't add to the misery.
6: Yeah, exactly. It's just that there are a lot of other things happening in these people's lives that are probably driving them to the point of eviction in the first place. On first principles, and eviction can only be bad. The key question then is just how bad.
0: So with this information in mind, what's to be done? How, how to improve then the, the trajectories that you speak of? If you look at the financial
6: trajectories of people who do get evicted, it tends to be the culmination of multi-year long financial stresses, which suggests that the point of intervention would be a bit earlier. The key ratio to think about is what's called the rent burden, and that's the percent of income that is devoted to rent. Right now, that has increased a lot, especially for poor families. So for those families who make less than $30,000 a year, more than half of them are paying 50% of their paychecks or more in rent or housing costs every single year.
0: So what about the notion of, of helping out the families who are giving over so much of their salary to housing in the first place?
6: In America, housing assistance, unlike other welfare programs, isn't a right. If you qualify for it because you're below a certain income level, you, only, you have to enter a literal lottery, and only about a quarter of people actually receive the benefit. It's a very strange way to operate a benefit because a quarter of people get a pretty substantial sum, and 75% of people get nothing. Some advocates would like... Housing assistance to be converted into a entitlement, so everyone who qualifies receives it. That seems unlikely given the current political configurations. The other problem with housing assistance is we would ultimately like for it to deconcentrate poverty in a lot of these cities, and that ends up not being the case. So I think that I'd like to go back to the point about cities and uh, just the high cost of living. That's not an organic decision that's the result of the market, it's a result of a constrained market, and there are ways to change it that I think would be more beneficial for the poor people who are struggling so much and who are ending up in these eviction courts. Idris, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: Leonardo da Vinci is remembered as an artist, an inventor, a scientist. But the ultimate Renaissance man also loved wine, calling it the divine liquor of the grape. Now, enologists, experts who study wine, are one step closer to that divine liquor. They've resurrected Leonardo's vineyard. In
1: 1495, Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, commissioned da Vinci to paint the Last Supper for the covenant of Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan. Andrew Knox writes about international news for The Economist. When Leonardo had finished, the Duke gave him a vineyard of about 16 rows as payment.
0: And what happened to to, to the vineyard?
1: So after da Vinci died, he bequeathed the vineyard to two different people, one of whom was a servant of his. It survived for centuries, although it did fall into a state of disrepair and was eventually completely destroyed by an Allied bombardment in 1943. In 2007, Luca Marroni, an enologist, wondered whether it might be possible to find some of the roots of the vineyard that might have survived the fire caused by the bombs if they had been buried sufficiently deep. So he collaborated with a geneticist, and uh, vine DNA experts. And they began to dig in the um, ruins of the vineyard, hoping to find some trace of what had once been there. And they found some. Yeah, luckily they found some roots that had enough intact genetic material that they were able to test them. And in 2009, they were able to identify the grapes that Da Vinci had been growing as Malvesia di Candia Aramatica, which is a variety that still grows in Italy today. So they scoured around and they found the grapes most similar in terms of their DNA profile to the roots, and then painstakingly started a process of recreating Leonardo's vineyard in its original site, copying the original layout as best they could from photos and from the historical record. It was eventually opened in 2015, time to coincide with the Milan Expo.
0: And surely, by now, there's some wine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, after a few years uh, to establish the vines themselves, the first harvest of Leonardo's vineyard was taken in in September 2018. It's produced 330 bottles, which are going to be auctioned off later this year. Uh, the bottles themselves are kind of interesting, too. They're based on a design found in da Vinci's Codex Vincer.
0: And how much are these bottles expected to go for?
1: As you might guess, they're expected to fetch a pretty fair price. But for those of us who aren't lucky or rich enough to uh, be able to get our hands on a bottle, there's still a pretty good alternative. You can go and visit the uh, vineyard in the gardens of the Casa dei Attilani in Milan and try there a wine made from the same type of grape. It's all rather pleasant. You can sort of go stroll through the parts of the house that are open to the public, then through the gardens and finally to the vineyard, and finish off your trip with a nice glass of white. It's a rather nice way of spending an afternoon.
0: And how's the wine?
1: Well, I I wouldn't pretend to be uh, an expert, but I uh, find it rather nice. It's sort of crisp and has some rather nice fruity notes. And it's all, you know, rather pleasant and calm in a city that is often not.
0: Andrew, thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jason.
0: That's all from us on The Intelligence. But we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. And see you back here on Monday.
2: Selling a little?